Are we now recording? All right, everybody, act professional. I love you. I love you. I love you. Welcome back. It's episode 150 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, where, full disclosure, the 2L year is just old episodes of Matlock. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media, and for some reason, 2004 Miss Arkansas. And I am joined, as always, by the Pacino and De Niro of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu. Visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. All right, fellas, uh, good to be back with you. Glad I was able to grab you while there was still time because sources close to me tell me that the both of you are headed for Milan next week. I'm assuming my ticket will just be waiting for me at the counter. Otherwise, this would be an egregious oversight. Presumably, this is this is some kind of fancy legal conference. We well, can never John confirm is- or deny Richard's presence anywhere. <laughs> okay, well, actually, at any time, I'm less concerned about the particulars of the conference <laughs> than I than I am about this burning question. Over to Milan. That's a long flight. High probability of discomfort at some point. So, the burning question I'm sure most of our listeners have: What is your preferred etiquette on, on reclining the seat? Richard, this is a classic collective action problem, so I feel compelled to start with you. Well, the answer is I don't like to go back very far, but I much prefer to sit in business class where it's less acute uh, because I think they're designed to avoid the interference question. And so what we did is, uh, contrary to John's instruction about getting coach, we used miles to get ourselves some business tickets, myself and my wife. What? And- <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be on the same plane as you, and I'm going to be like 40 rows of back fighting over. John is just a sign of our relative food? social status actually it's a sign of the fact that we're going to be in some kind of sleep pod from the future but what happens here? is no when next God, first class i wouldn't go in first class it's spooky but business classes <laughs> on international flights are a bit spiffier on domestic ones and so what we are going to do is use our precious miles to get us ah. there right and so now if you had flown as much as we did or had the same kind of lavish expenditures with your credit cards you too could have indulged in this right <laughs> um so i mean i plead that these are all purchase benefits and i hope that we will enjoy it the only tragedy about it is it's nine hours and it's completely used up so so this you know, is a wasted it's a wasting asset you know that uh, there is a seinfeld episode about this and <sighs> jerry is in business class so i guess you're jerry and i'm elaine and elaine's stuck in coach and she tries to sneak into business class because there's an open seat in back because they have cookies they have hot cookies <laughs> <laughs> she John, gets I, caught. She gets caught, by the way. The uh, stewardess and gets sent back. I will not go back. I, I feel like I don't even need to ask you the reclining question, John, because you are uh, categorically doing the reclining. I, I just of can't course. imagine a scenario in which you would not. So let, let me ask I'm you shocked. instead. Richard, because- being a libertarian, of course, I try to take as much space as I can get away with in all, <laughs> in all directions. Back, <laughs> forward, I'm kicking the seat in front. I'm going to take the middle seat, too, for my stuff. Territorial expansionism is your, your primary imperative. God bless uh, it, John. I mean, you know, what they do is for people like you and me, they limit the they limit the degree of freedom on the level that you could go back. They've changed it on these seats. They used to have a very widespread, and the theory was if there's nobody behind you, why not give the generosity? But it turns out that people go back the full length even when there is somebody behind them. So you get the knees and chest syndrome on the one hand versus the expansionist on the other, and there have been too many fights, so I think the airlines have basically restricted the freedom, <laughs> uh, given the fact that the probability of having somebody in the seat behind you lately is much higher than it was 20 years ago yeah john john is the bad man in that, in that well i mean that, it's a prisoner's dilemma game that right? just made sense to me <laughs> there, there is also a, one other bit of official business that we need to get to before we start because john um you're a denizen of the bay area i expect that you're something of an expert on nfts these are um 
Well, I'll be honest, no one knows what the hell they are, but this is where you can own the original of a digital asset, despite everyone being able to get a copy that's just as good. Yeah, for stupid anyway, relevant point here is that McDonald's has just brought back your beloved McRib and is giving away 10 McRib NFTs, which feels like your version of Pokemon. Is, is there a way that you can somehow find your way to being in possession of all 10 of these? I, I don't get it. You know, if, if it was like a little medallion and I could get a free McRib every time I went into McDonald's, yes, I would be interested. But the second thing is, I don't understand <laughs> why we want to prove the authenticity of an original McRib. The whole point of the McRib is that it's fake. That's why it tastes so good. I don't need to prove to me that it's like authentic in some way. It's like, you know, I don't need to know the original recipe for Spam to know that it tastes good. What is this? <laughs> I don't get John, it. John, you deserve to sit in Coach Cast with your culinary taste. <laughs> Look at it. Getting into the classes. Six minutes in. Yeah. Right, I, mean, whereas, uh, I mean, actually, I happen to like diners, but only upscale diners. All right. Well, listen. And John we also likes delicatessen. Oh, I love Jewish delis. I love them. We've been to one, Richard. That, the one that closed. I know that, and it's been closed down because you and I don't go back enough. Also, they were stealing electricity from all their neighbors, I believe. Really? <laughs> yeah, the Carnegie Deli. <laughs> right, folks. You make it impossible for me to transition into the serious material. So we waited for this episode so that we could see what the oral arguments would look like in the Supreme Court's case about the controversial new Texas abortion law, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, the weird thing here, John, is that a lot of the media coverage here could lead the layperson to think that this is a straight-ahead abortion case like the Mississippi one that's coming up. In reality, this has a lot more to do with the unique construction of the Texas law and what that means about who can challenge it and under what circumstance. So can you break down what's actually at stake here? Good luck. Yeah. One way to think of it is <laughs> one way to think of it is take abortion out of the question because it could apply to a, a, a lot of areas where individual rights are at issue, gun rights, free speech rights, rights against discrimination and so on. So what Texas did, is that they created essentially a cause of action against people who perform abortions after I believe there's a heartbeat detected. So it's not for the government or prosecutors or police to bring criminal investigations or actions against anybody. Instead, any other person in Texas can just sue for damages the people who are carrying out abortions. So the the question that's up at the court is not really about the issue of abortion, but whether a state can escape responsibility uh, for state action, the phrases in the law. Because the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution only apply to the actions of states. So what Texas is saying is, we're not doing anything. There's no Texas officials doing anything. The only thing that's going on is that private people are policing each other. And so the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment don't apply. And now the problem with the So it's interesting. So at one level, this is cl very clever, because at one level, what uh, Texas is going to say, has said, I'm sorry, is that um, nothing's happened yet. No one's brought a lawsuit under the law. So there's no one who's been injured in fact, under doctrine called standing, by the existence of this law. Uh, an abortion doctor or the United States who've both sued against this could say, well, you've basically forestalled us because of the fear of being sued. And there really is state action going on here because Texas created a law that's going to be enforced by its courts, that's going to be enforced by its legal system. And so that really is the action of the state. But it's really interesting because most of the time when we allow people to come into court and challenge a law, they have to have standing. They have to prove that they were injured in some way by the enforcement of the law by officials of the state, which doesn't exist here. 
Um, I have a slightly different take on this. There was all sorts of cases that sometimes arise where people speak about chilling effect in connection with First Amendment doctrines. And what happens is somebody puts a law on the books and uh, government itself may think about enforcing it. And the individual says, you know, so long as they're out there with this sort of Damocles hanging over my head, I can't do whatever it is I want to do. John is right. This is not just about abortion. It could be about anything like selling newspapers in a subway. Uh, the usual case, however, you know whom to sue. And so the only question you have to worry about is the immediacy question. Is this too remote that you don't want to get involved or is it too likely? What happens in this particular case is it's kind of fiendishly clever uh, because the state basically washes its hands and say, we're not going to sue anybody. And then, of course, there are three million citizens or more in the state of Texas who are eligible to sue. And the question is... Do you bring a class action against every Texas person saying, please don't sue us and have all the management problems associated with that? And I think that's a dead loser. And so the argument then on the other side is that you can challenge this situation uh, the moment that somebody actually does bring this suit. And if I'm not mistaken, John, I don't think anybody's actually brought a suit yet. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, so, so, so it's kind of surreal. You're talking about an imminent threat that never happens. And, and and it kind of ties everybody up into nods. So the case is really about this form of proceduralism. I agree with John that this is a form of state action because you've given people the authority to do something that without the state action they would never do. Um, it's not clear that the state has standing to give it to these people to sue because they've not suffered any injury except for the fact that they now want the money that the state promises them. So I don't think that it's, um, given the novelty of the situation, uh, bizarre or untenable to come up with the conclusion that you should basically sue the state, ask for an injunction, and the injunction says we wish you to essentially treat the statute as though it's null and void until it's been adjudicated. And at that point, nobody can sue on it. And then what you do is you go ahead with the litigation. You then sue the state and say, we think that this is good. And the state says, no, we think it's perfectly legitimate to do this. And you have it out both on the standing issue and, of course, on the substantive merits. The merits in this case being whether or not this uh, heartbeat statute is going to be appropriate. That's going to get you into Roe v. Wade territory because Roe v. Wade uh, basically used a trimester system and six is one half of 13, a little bit less. So, I mean, I think that this thing will be disposed of on procedural grounds. My prediction is the Supreme Court will, in fact, adopt something like what I have said and essentially try to neutralize the private guys and then invite a lawsuit on the merits uh, to be fully briefed by the state on the one hand and the various individual physicians um, who decided to bring the suit. And since this is a kind of injunctive relief, not a damage case, it doesn't matter who the plaintiff is. If that plaintiff wins, then the statute is enjoined against everybody, not just against some people. Uh, it's not like the situation where the individual is seeking damages, is seeking damages from some person, so that he's the only person who could be attacked. So it is kind of a very nice, bizarre situation. But in the long long run, it's going to be the Mississippi case, which we've talked about perhaps too often, uh, which is going to get to the question of whether the trimester system as it exists under Roe v. Wade will survive a change in political climate, a change in perceived uh, birth cycles with respect to individuals, and with respect to perceived changes in public opinion, all of which are mixed together in an unholy stew. John, uh, let me ask you this. The, the whole reason that this Texas law was drafted in this way was because of precisely this prospect. They're trying to construct something so clever that they could sort of flummox the courts as to how you challenge it. And these are conservatives who are putting this together. If you believe in all of the things that most of the people in the conservative legal community ostensibly believe in, in the rule of law and originalism, it, it, is the proper reaction to an act of or you know, Richard called it fiendishly clever, fiendishly clever draftsmanship like this is the proper reaction to be impressed by how carefully engineered this was or to kind of roll your eyes and say, this is too clever by half. And actually, this is the kind of thing that could create more problems than it solves because you're now sort of daring the courts to find a way to stop you and you might not like how creative they have to get to get there. I, I mean, I think it's a big mistake to try things like this. Um, for several reasons. Uh, some of it is based on original understanding of the Reconstruction Amendments, as you suggest, as you suggest, Troy, because 
think about what happened right after the Civil War. The Southern states reimposed what they, uh, a lot of the restrictions that were similar to slavery, which they called the Black Codes at the time. And so the, the United States, the Congress uh, proposes the states ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments to put an end to it. Does it mean that the Southern states could have gotten away with segregation under the 14th Amendment if they just said, uh, we're going to allow right, private people to engage in segregation. We're going to let private people prevent blacks from voting. We're going to let private people commit violence against the freed slaves. And there's no nothing you can do about in the legal system. I don't think that's right. In fact, I th- there were a series of cases uh, in the civil rights movement era in the 50s and 60s about state action involving racial covenants, which said, um, you know, even though you can put in your your you know the deed of your property when you sell it that it can't be sold to uh, blacks or other minorities, that's still the action of the state to enforce that contract term. And I, I mean, it, you know, people say this is a capacious reading of how far the gov- the Fourteenth uh, Amendment can reach or the Thirteenth Amendment can reach. But I think it was correct as a matter of the original understanding. But you're right, also Trey. Then you make this functional point, which I think is also right, which is if Texas were allowed to get away with this, then why can't legislators in New York and California say, uh, you know, you we're going to create a private right for citizens, individuals to sue people who have guns, um, to sue them for the harm of just having a gun? Or what if they did that with a whole series of other individual rights? They're the same template could be used by an unfriendly state government to try to suppress whatever individual liberty they find unpopular, like speech. Yeah. Can I, I disagree with John on one point. Uh, he's referred to the 1949 case, I believe it was, called Shelley v. Kramer, uh, which said that racially restrictive covenants are not to be enforced, not because there's a civil rights law in effect, which is the situation today, but because the act of judicial enforcement of a private agreement converts it into state action. So it's the state that's denying you equal protection of the law. Uh, it's the same difficulty with that applies as the one that John mentioned. It's one thing to say, ah, I really like this kind of theory when it starts to apply to race. Uh, but in effect, what one can say is anytime you ask the state for any assistance in enforcing any right, that makes it state action so that the line between state and public action, which was thought to be dominant with respect to the organization of the 14th Amendment, now starts to disappear. And I think that leaves a lot of people very meaning, very uneasy. The traditional view was that, of course, you could apply uh, the 14th Amendment to uh, judicial action. But it was in a case like Stouter versus Virginia, I believe it was, in which what happens is you start having jury selection rules, which are organized by the court, which have systematic racial exclusions. That's completely non-problematic in terms of this basic theory because it's the state action from start to beginning, from start to end. But if, in fact, you say every time the state makes itself an agent of an individual to ensue something, uh, that you can examine these things under some kind of civil rights theory, it's not only explicit racial covenants that are going to go there. Somebody wants to enforce a contract, say, uh, in a corporate reorganization set, and somebody says, oh, you know what, Uh, this thing has a disparate impact by grounds of race. And so now it turns out it's state action and we can bring an entire set of sanctions against you uh, based on constitutional provision. Uh, At that point, the line between public and private action starts to disappear. And I don't think we want to do it. In fact, uh, in the 1920s, when the same issue was raised uh, in another case, it was held that this presented no serious federal question and it was summarily disappeared. And what's happened is Shelley B. Kramer is a kind of an orphan. It's not even used in its own domain anymore because after they passed the uh, Civil Rights Acts dealing with public housing, um, it turned out that they had more effective remedies. One could argue whether these are good or bad things. I'm not in favor of them in many cases, but at least uh, you have the authorization problem handled without having to toll this state action. Okay, guys, I want to move you off of the court and across the street to, to Capitol Hill for a bit. Oh, great. Uh, let's start with the, the controversies around the January 6th commission. They have been seeking records from the Trump White House from January 6th to try and get a fuller picture of what was happening in the building that day, what role the president was playing. 
And former President Trump has been resisting that under claims of executive privilege. Those claims, however, are not being supported by President Biden. And this is somewhat unusual. There is often some measure of solidarity across presidents, even if they're from different parties, on the importance of executive privilege. So why don't we do this? We can work up to the topical part of this, but why don't we start with the historical origins of this so that we can understand what exactly is at play here? So, John, executive privilege is not explicitly in the Constitution, although it's been been a live topic basically from the country's start. Explain to us how this has developed over the years and how that gets us to this place where it's not clear whether or not it's going to apply to Donald Trump here. Interesting question, Troy. The, uh, yeah, as you say, the phrase executive privilege does not appear in the Constitution. Executive privilege is the right to keep confidential discussions uh, between the president and top aides. But presidents from George Washington on have always claimed it. For example, uh, when George Washington sent Chief Justice John Jay, actually, off to negotiate a treaty with the British, which resulted in the controversial Jay Treaty, uh, the House sought the negotiation records of the treaty, and George Washington said the House had no right to them, although he did provide a form of them to the Senate because he wanted the Senate to give its advice and consent to the treaty. Presidents ever since, including you know, populists you know, like Thomas Jefferson, Um, have also claimed this right of executive privilege. Uh, But it wasn't until, as always, with the presidency, Richard Nixon showed up that the the Supreme Court had to get involved. Generally, you know, Congress used to, and the courts used to give a fair, um, fair amount of respect to these kinds of claims of executive privilege. But as you remember, Richard Nixon uh, taped his discussions in the Oval Office And when the special prosecutor at that time wanted access to those tapes to see if Nixon had ordered the cover-up of the breakup into the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate Hotel, Nixon claimed executive privilege. And in the case of Nixon versus United States, the Supreme Court blessed the idea, but with conditions. So the court said there's two kinds of executive privilege there. The first one is the core, which was in the president's discussing with his aides or her aides matters involving national security, foreign policy, diplomacy, law enforcement. You know, those those functions which are really core to the executive branch. The court said those discussions are almost absolute in their protections. Then the court said there's a more generalized right to confidentiality when those subjects aren't involved. And then the court said, but those claims of executive privilege can be overridden when the demander of the information has a very strong need for them. And in that case, in the Nixon tapes case itself, the court said the Watergate burglars were demanding the tapes to prove their innocence. And so the courts were actually demanding along with the executive, the prosecutor, the tapes, in order to give uh, meaning to the Bill of Rights, to the individual rights of the Watergate burglars. And the court said that overrode Nixon's right to secrecy in his discussions. So it's interesting here because with Bannon, with Mark Meadows, with Rudy Giuliani, there are all kinds of different people. Some of them, for example, the courts have always assumed, I think, that executive privilege only applies between the president and official aides, not just everyone the president happens to call up. Well, the interesting thing is Steve Bannon isn't working for the U.S. government. He has no official position. In fact, by, uh, Trump fired him, uh, I think, two years before this happened. Um, Rudy Giuliani is not a government official, but he's the president's lawyer, our external lawyer. So he may not get executive privilege, but I wonder if he gets attorney-client privilege. But then another interesting wrinkle the idea is that the privilege belongs to the office of the president, not the person who happens to be president. And so Joe Biden has said he's waiving all executive privilege involving the Trump administration as it relates to any investigation by Congress into the January 6 events, or if the Justice Department happens to be investigating for a criminal reasons like you know, conspiracy to commit sedition, conspiracy to block the enforcement of the election laws, and so on. So I think this is the first stop on the way 
to where we get to something that's going to look like the Iran-Contra hearings, and we're going to see the appearance of uh, Ollie North at some point. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, look, I want to take, pick up where John left off. Um, the basic argument about the executive privilege of the president um, is that uh, you will not have candid deliberations if what the president says to his senior public officials on the payroll can always be attacked. Uh, look, if it turned out that the position went with the office and not with the man, uh, that privilege is going to be effectively dashed because a hostile president, as Biden, to Trump, can say, I'm going to waive the privilege. So I think that with respect to these kinds of issues, um, it's going to have to take both. I think the current president can keep it quiet. I think, in effect, the former president could keep it quiet uh, so that it would require a waiver by both parties rather than by one uh, for the privilege to be waived. So then there's a further question about this is, do you need to have waiver in all cases? And I think the answer to that question is clearly no. Uh, there are certain circumstances which are so grave and in which the evidence that you need is so obviously relevant uh, that what one says is the interest in public decorum and in probity of government is so strong that even if the president claims the privilege, we don't allow him to do it. If you look back at the Nixon tapes and so forth, think of what you already knew. You knew that you wanted the tapes. You knew the exact days you wanted the tapes for. You knew the exact information that you wanted the tapes for. And essentially what happened is you could have a very focused approach. So what happens in this case is they said, we want anything that pertains to January 6th, which is a very broad kind of statement. There is no predicate kind of situation where they say, oh, we know that you had a conversation with Mr. or Miss X, and what we want you to do is to reveal that because that will tell us whether or not you had bona fides when you said, please keep this uh, demonstration peaceful. Um, and I would certainly say that that would be appropriate. So my view about this is I would probably have a compromise verdict, which on the facts of this case, at least as we see them, would mean that Trump would more likely than not prevail. What I would require is that the government first make a showing that the information that they're trying to seek is essentially something that is indispensable for the investigation because they cannot get that kind of information anywhere from anybody else. And then I would require them to show that they have some reason to believe that the president has this kind of information in his possession. And in order to do that, what they would have to do is to interview people who don't have privilege, take advantage of available documents, look at face matchings and so forth. Then come up with a viable series of saying, you know what, we think we can show that Trump was engaged in incitement because we can piece together the following three or four things. At that point, I think he should be obliged to answer and probably lose. Uh, his objection was, of course, to the quote-unquote fishing expedition. Um, this term is both trite and true. Uh, the definition of a fixing expedition is we don't know what it is that you've done wrong, but we're sure you've done something, so we're going to throw this line out there, and whatever comes up on the end of the line, whether it be a big bass or an old shoe, uh, we're going to be able to use it. And most courts have been basically suspicious about that. And so what they do is they narrow the scope of the discovery to make sure that there's a high likelihood of relevance. And then if it turns out that you find something, what you can do is then go to the next level and have discovery as an iterative process rather than a once and for all situation, which is, I think, what I would want to do in this particular case. Because what we do know, in effect, is we have huge amounts of information about what Trump said at the rally. Uh, we know sort of what his tweets were afterwards. We know what people who were close to the president said at all relevant time. Uh, what we do is we also have the conversation of everybody at the site. And so one of the defenses that Trump will make in the court of public opinion is I just urge them to go there to protest. It was to make sure that the case would be sent back to the states under the 12th Amendment, a theory which I think is wrong. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but he says, I didn't want them to storm the Capitol. Well, this would change things. And so what's really going on here is you're getting kind of a rerun of the impeachment sort of investigation. And I think that that's pretty partisan. I think there are two members of this committee, right, who are Republicans. I think both of them are anti-Trumpers. So I think what you have to do is to take the same attitude here that you took with the efforts to try to get uh, some of the tax hearings of Trump in order to do a legislative report. And it was not an absolute privilege, the way in which Judge Rao had urged down below. But when you got through with justice, uh, 
Roberts, he essentially used something like the procedure that I've said, show me cause why it is that you need these documents. And so I think that's the way this thing ought to be resolved. And of course, I don't know what other stuff they can bring up, but at least on the strength of the record thus far, I don't think that the government can get these particular documents if you allow, as I think is correct, Trump to assert the privilege for himself with respect to his own speeches. Obviously, he can't assert it with respect to anything in the Biden administration. Just briefly, the other legal controversy coming out of this commission, of course, is the one that we mentioned a few moments ago involving Steve Bannon, because the committee subpoenaed him to appear. He has defied that on, again, grounds of executive privilege, though, as John said, that Bannon was long since a private citizen by the time this happened. Uh, he will lose the, that. that. Well, this was going to be my question. The House voted to hold him in criminal contempt. But in recent years, those cases rarely get prosecuted. So the congressional subpoena power has to some degree been withering away. Uh, John, if, if first question, if this were to go to court, would Bannon have any chance at succeeding? And is it a problem that the subpoena power is atrophying like this for Congress? I don't think he has any chance. I, I, so take his claim. His claim is the executive privilege is not just limited to the president's discussion with official government employees, but to anybody. So that would mean like President Trump, as he was wont to do, could talk all he wanted to reporters. And then when those reporters wanted to print what he said, he could go to court and sue them and enjoin them from publishing what they what the president had said to them. It doesn't make any sense, I think, for I disagree uh, with that. executive privilege to extend to people who are outside the government. If you because I think it could go that far. But second, I think that What's going to happen is Biden, I'm sorry, Bannon uh, loses his right to executive privilege. And the uh, Congress, well, there's two kinds of ways of forcing the subpoena. So Congress can make a referral to the Justice Department and the Justice Department can pursue Bannon under a criminal law. Now, you're right, Troy, that this is kind of atrophied um, in part because I, I hate to say it, the Obama administration Justice Department, I think, refused to bring those kinds of prosecutions against people in its own administration for political reasons. You might remember Lois Lerner, the woman at the IRS who I think right. was denying nonprofit status to conservative groups but not liberal groups, was um, Congress did refer her for prosecution and the Justice Department there chose not to do it. I have a hard time thinking that the Biden administration is going to take a pass on their <laughs> chance to prosecute, to have a case called U.S. versus Bannon. In fact, I think there's already a different U.S. versus Bannon going in the Southern District of New York for some kind of fraud involving money raising on the Internet. Yeah. But okay. if that doesn't happen, then you're right, Troy. Then I think then you have this hard, harder issue of a civil uh, enforcement to the civil contempt, which is much harder. And uh, the courts have generally not liked to step into that. There was a case involving Don McGahn, who was Trump's White House counsel, that took years to pursue. Eventually, the D.C. courts um, found for the House, I think. And so McGahn eventually did cooperate. Never went to the Supreme Court. In fact, the Supreme Court has said, noted a year ago in the case about the Trump tax returns, that really hasn't decided this issue squarely before. And even in that case, they avoided. They really hope that the executive branch and Congress can come to some kind of accommodation. But I think this is all a prelude because I think what's going to happen is that Bannon loses on contempt. So he gets a subpoena. The subpoena says show up at this hearing at this date and time. So Bannon shows up. What is he going to do? He's going to take the fifth, right? He's under got to be under investigation, not just by Congress, but by the Justice Department for right, trying to stop the electoral count, trying to uh, engage in a conspiracy for sedition. And so if he takes a fifth, then the really interesting question, I think this is really what it gets, what this is all leading up to, is does Congress grant a Bannon or a Rudy Giuliani immunity from prosecution so that they can get them out there in public and tell the story of what really happened on January 5th and then on January 6th and what was the involvement of uh, President Trump. This is kind of ironic. Um, one of the sort of fiendish scenarios is that Bannon, in fact, knows nothing except stuff that would exonerate the president. 
crypto. But he says, as he called him up, and I said, you can't bear this terrible publicity. You have to call back these troops and make it very clear that you dissociate yourself. So one of the things that happens in cases like this is you could ask for information, and it may backfire. I have no idea whether that's true here. Given Bannon's personality, I would guess more likely than not that it's false. But I do want to make at least one point. Um, I disagree with John on. I think that the conversations that uh, Trump had with Bannon may have had, quote unquote, an expectation of privacy attached to them. I know that that's not the case with comments that he makes to multiple reporters. So I think, in effect, the reporter case is so easy that you don't have to think about it. With the Bannon case, you at least have to think about the question is that this is a private conversation with a former trusted advisor about something that is subject to investigation? Do you get something? I think the answer to this question is no. I do think that the executive privilege requires it. But then John mentioned, oh, you get self-incrimination and you get the question of uh, waivers in order to get immunity so as to get the prosecution. There's also something else, by the way. You come there, uh, he can still object to subpoenas on the grounds that they're not relevant and that they are not, in effect, going to lead to information that is going to be introduced into court. So that what you have to do is to treat the uh, executive privilege as a marginal line which has been crossed. But after that's crossed, you're still going to have to fight the guerrilla warfare with respect to particular kinds of statements. And so if I were Bannon, I would say I have no privilege whatsoever. Okay, but I do have essentially the argument of being protected against harassment and fishing expeditions under the federal rules. Uh, That's true on the civil side. On the criminal side, um, it's probably going to be true as well. I don't know criminal procedure as well as I do civil procedure. Uh, But generally speaking, we know that criminal defendants don't get any discovery against the government. But you go after them, then he's going to say, well, you know, there's Brady. You have to tell me everything that you know about me so that I can figure out what I'm supposed to answer to you. So I would say that um, I think the executive privilege claim will lose, but I think that's act one, scene one of a play that may be as long as another one of these macabre Shakespearean tragedies. And I think in the end, it's just uncertain what's going to happen. Um, We had this discussion, John and I, and uh, other people, over the question of whether or not the events of July, January 6th uh, could show a, an impeachable offense at that particular time. And I took the position on the basis of the public record uh, that it was probably not going to be enough. You could not call this incitement to riot or uh, insurrection. Uh, there are certainly many crimes that have to take place, but trying to get the president was going to be actually a little bit tricky given what he actually did say. And given that there are all sorts of protections for speech that amount to some kind of fighting words which are going to be allowed if all you're trying to say is we have to go to the White House and to protest this to the intimate or the Capitol to protest this injurious act of Congress, and that may be downright foolish, but it is not an incitement to insurrection and so forth. And I think they're going to have to do that. But we don't even know, by the way. John, maybe you could explain it to me, Troy. Are they doing this investigation to cleanse the public record? Or are they trying to figure out a way in which at the end of the day they can now indict Donald Trump for something, given that he's out of office? Well, the one one point about I think you raise a good point, but I don't think it's going to be a stumbling block in the end is that according to Supreme Court precedent, in order to conduct these investigations, there has to be some kind of legislative purpose to it. But I don't think that's hard to imagine here. So they're not supposed to be conducting investigations for for criminal purposes, right? That's the Justice Department's job. But of course, they overlap. And that's the problem created by immunity. But why? I mean, they the January 6th commission could say, right, we're looking at uh, how the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act operated and whether they're they're too vulnerable to what happened on to things like happened on January 6th and whether we need to change the laws in order to, you know, if, I mean, the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment are quite unclear, actually, about what happens when there's a, um, and, and this is, gets to the merits of what, you know, John Eastman's memos were about and everything, but the 12th Amendment is unclear, I think, about what happens when there's a disputed electoral vote. My my view is different than uh, John's. I think that um, there has to be a dispute that comes out of the states that you can't say as the vice president, well, I people tell me there's a dispute. I, I worry there's some kind of problem in the way a vote was taken under in a state. I think there actually has to be some sort of dispute that has arisen between the branches of a state government or involving courts or so on. But just to claim fraud is not enough. 
Anyway, you need something like the 1876 election. Yeah, exactly. Where, the, where you have competing uh, slates of electors or something. Yeah, can we say something? You know, and this is something that arose right in the beginning at the founding. It arose in uh, the election of John Adams. It arose in the election of Thomas That's Jefferson. why I had the 12th Amendment. Yeah, yeah. But they, but they actually didn't go to the resolution of the dispute issue. They went to the separation of the president and the vice presidential ballots. But anyway, I just want to put that aside for a second. But just to say, it seems to me that's sufficient for a legislative purpose to conduct an investigation, which is, do you need to take better security measures at the Capitol? Do we even need to change the laws? Do we need to create a better dispute system, resolution system for electoral votes? Look, I, I disagree with John. I think these are interesting questions. I think the interpretation of the 12th Amendment is not one of them. The key words is we talk about lists that they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of government, right? And then the president of the Senate shall in the presence of the Senate have open all the certificates and the vote shall then be counted. Um, if you've got everybody sitting there, that's a validation that you're opening them. You're not sneaking any out of it. It is not an invitation in any way, shape, or form to conduct a de novo hearing on the merits of this thing. Uh, it seems to me you can't do this. So I don't think that you need any kind of investigation of Mr. Trump to figure out whether the right or wrong answer is. I think what you do is you write a very good legal memo saying that the point of this particular situation is exactly what John said. If there are genuine disputes between between competing slates and so forth, fine. But if all that stuff has been resolved and you're doing this in front of everybody and opening and counting, they're there to make sure that there's not a miscount. They're not there to relitigate the situation. And then, again, if you want to figure out, well, what should we do with people storming the Capitol? My view is the same as it is before. I think it's a really serious kind of offense and so forth. Uh, but before you want to go after a president who was not at the scene at that particular time in order to deal with legislative reform, what you have to do is to figure out whether you can get other sources that make this to some extent less necessary, given the fact that he may have at least some kind of executive privilege, which travels with him even after he's out of office. And, and I just don't see at this particular point, given all the information that we have, what reform proposal is going to be done. I felt the same way about Donald Trump in the tax situation. He had a thousand tax deal. I've done enough tax law to realize that if you know what you're doing in this situation, you could take huge amounts of economic income and dissipate it in various different ways so that the tax you pay is far less than the tax you ought to pay. But you can investigate Warren Buffett or Bill Gates to get this information. And so it turns out it looks like it's an individual investigation with an eye towards a vendetta, which is why it was, I think, that the Rao opinion was largely upheld. I think of that as being the situation here. So let's be very clear. I don't want to defend anything that happened at the particular day in terms of the merits. But I don't think that there's a legislative purpose that requires his testimony. Uh, we can say right now that the interpretation that Trump uh, wanted to put on this was wrong. We can say right now that violence trying to upset this thing is wrong. We can say right now that Pence was right to hold his fire and to certify the ballots. Uh, and then we could worry about all sorts of other things having to do with elections under some other day. But again, I, I think in the end, this is an effort to get Trump rather than to get legislation through. And I am not a fan of doing this, even with respect to presidents. And remember my position on Trump. Forget about impeachment. I thought that he was basically unfit for office as of January of 2017, mainly because of exactly spots like this. I did not think that he would have the character, the courage, or the good sense to avoid these problems. He's heaped an enormous amount of ugliness on the American Republic. He has tainted every Republican now for a very long period of time. He's put the whole nation on edge by his antics. Even if it's not impeachable, it doesn't mean that it isn't, to use a word, deplorable. And I wish he would retire from public life. I think that's what I want. But, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And if he's done some pretty egregious things, it doesn't justify false prosecutions or fake investigations, if that's what this turns out to be. So I think, in effect, this is going to be a fairly long and complicated situation. It is by no means a slam dunk um, for the House committee on the kinds of issues that they're investigating. I avoid political endorsements as a rule, but I kind of want to see Trump win again in 2024, just so we can have you call for his resignation again in January of 2025. I have to move us on because you're going to like this, Richard. There's, there's one other thing that's happening in Congress that I wanted to get you guys to because this is a Richard Epstein special. All right. So, 
as as the Democrats have gone uh, back and forth on their big multi-trillion dollar reconciliation package, which has been a day away from passage for about three months now, there has been this kind of delirious improvisation about what it's going to consist of. And this has been especially true when it comes to the funding mechanisms. And one of the ideas that we've seen float sort of in and out of the package is this idea of what they call a wealth tax. They're very careful not to call it a tax on unrealized capital gains, but that's what it is. So you take the super rich and you tax them based on the estimated value of assets that they own but haven't yet sold. There are obviously a lot of policy objections to that. But we're also hearing legal ones. And Richard, some people are suggesting that a tax like this would be unconstitutional. Is that your read? And if so, why? Well, I think actually it goes the opposite way. Um, uh, The wealth tax essentially says we just care how much you have. We don't care whether you made or lost money during the last year. Uh, The 16th Money Amendment basically says we don't have to worry about apportionment and all that jazz uh, with respect to a tax on income. This is not that. Uh, Then you try to figure out, is it another kind of tax, an excise tax or an estate tax? And the answer, if you go back to the cases, um, is that it is not that. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the rule that you have is you have to have a transaction take place, which you can then tax. So, for example, if you wish to tax somebody under an estate tax, what you do is you look at the total value of the estate and you can tax that, but you can only tax it once. That is at the time it passes. This thing is supposed to be an annual tax, and it's not based on anything. So it's not at all clear that this thing would count it. If you look at this as a tax on unrealized income, uh, then it's another set of complications. I'll just give the simplest version of it. The first case that dealt with this particular problem in the courts was a case called Eisner and McCumber. Uh, It was an opinion by, guess whose favorite judge? Um, Malin Pitney. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what it said is they had a stock dividend on a stock Uh, which essentially didn't change relative proportion. And what Pitney said is that this is not a realization event because nothing has happened. You now have two shares worth $20 each instead of having one share worth $40, not to be done. Uh, Later on, people basically came to the conclusion that the realization requirement was not a constitutional amendment. Uh, So at that particular point, you have the following argument. If you wanted to tax capital gains on sale, what you are doing in many cases is taxing the appreciation in the property since you bought it perhaps many years ago. So that's all we're doing here, only we're not having the sale. So we could tax accrued gains uh, and not have to worry about realization. The difference, of course, between the two cases is if you do this on unrealized gains, you then have to figure out how they're going to liquidate it to mortgage property in order to get this thing. You're also going to have real nightmares figuring out how the rest of the economy is going to work when everybody tries to dump stock at the same time to do this. You're going to have to figure out in a down year whether or not you give people huge refunds or whether or not you give them tax credits against past or future income. It's a real mess. And the other thing, of course, is I don't think it's unconstitutional as such, but the idea that somehow or other all the other sources of taxable gain that you're going to get, including taxable gain on sales by ordinary people, is going to be the same, not if the value of the shares are going to gyrate wildly in any particular year, and if it's going to influence the way in which companies essentially distribute dividends and so forth, it can change primary behavior. So this is a body blow to the system. And you just can't say, well, let's just figure out what this thing's worth. That's the number. And assume there are going to be no adaptive responses by anybody in any way, shape, or form to what has happened. So I think that this is really very foolish. It's close enough to the wealth tax in terms of its consequences uh, that you know that the wealth tax has failed everywhere it has been tried in Europe and so forth. You also know that the numbers that they're putting on here are really steep. And if you do this as unrealized capital gain and treat capital gain as being taxed at, say, 40% of value, right? So you have a stock which is worth, say, $100 and the basis was 20. And so what you do is you take 40% of the 80, you get $3,200 out of that. If, in fact, you did it as a wealth tax, you get 2% on $100,000, right? And so one tax is much, much higher than the other. 
And so it's really a big difference if you start to do this on an unrealized appreciation. Then, of course, the next year you're going to have to give them a step up in basis, and then you're going to have the problem of gain or loss. It's going to be a different nightmare. But remember this, the unrealized appreciation tax is likely to be far higher than the wealth tax, not only for a single year, but over the long run. And I just don't believe that that's going to survive. There's another doctrine out there which is called confiscatory taxation. It's never been applied to progressive taxes, for example, in a case called brush harbor. But boy, oh boy, if you look at this in context with every other tax that's going to be imposed, with the inflation that you have in the capital gains, with the possibility of an estate tax at the end of it, you can easily see how you have a stack of wealth there and the taxes are going to exceed its total value, at which point confiscation seems to be trivial. And in lesser cases, we've yet to find the line between a tax and a taking, although we know in principle that such a line exists. There's going to be a lot of litigation about this one if it comes forward. And I think all bets are off is to try to figure out, given the mess that's going to be created, who wins. And remember, they have to draft this thing. And this is not an easy thing to draft because you have so many provisions that deal with recognition and non-recognition of gain uh, that it's a major revamp of the thing. And you're trying to do this before November 10th. Forget about it. You can't get it right. John, you want to talk about tax policy or you want to talk about your alma mater? I'm still not sure why I have to pay any tax on my income. For okay, we're going to talk about your, your alma mater. <laughs> no, John, just, look, John, John, one, one tiny point. One tiny, but we're both alumni of Yale, but let John talk first. No, no, just like one tiny addition to yes. Richard's point was, you know, before the income tax amendment, you couldn't have done this, right? You had to apportion taxes proportionally amongst the states by population. I would just say, I don't think the framers of the income tax amendment, which is in the early 1910s, I think during the Wilson administration, would have, con- yeah, would have conceived that we would create the income, as it was understood at that time, would have included unrealized gains and assets. I, I mean, they, they could have made clear and they didn't, and they didn't, they did not uh, create such a tax immediately after the passage of ratification of the amendment. So I think just it's just like the income tax amendment itself. I think a wealth tax goes into effect and the court strikes it down. And then if people want to go through the process of two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states, they're welcome to, to try to create such a tax. But I think under the existing constitution, it's not permitted by, by so to the, the federal government. States could do it if they want. Um, I think it's more complicated, John. Like a property tax. I don't like paying property tax on my house, but <laughs> so that's unrealized we're, we're, asset. John likes other people paying taxes on his house. Exactly right. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're running short on time. There's a couple things I want to get you guys to, so we, we can do these briefly, but I, I want to devote a few moments talking about what's happened at your mutual alma mater at Yale Law School. So the Washington Free Beacon has been reporting on this story about a Yale Law student. He's a member of the Federalist Society, also part Native American, which will be relevant in a moment. And he sent out an invite for a Constitution Day party that was going to be jointly held by FedSoc and a Native American group. And because this invitation referred to the location of the party as a trap house, it sent a bunch of activist groups on campus off. There was a time when the phrase trap house literally meant a kind of crack den. Now it basically is just a term for a place to party. So this kid gets called in front of an associate dean and the diversity director who try to compel him to apologize to all the students who were offended. These administrators actually write a statement for him to put out, which he refuses to do, but he says he's happy to talk to anyone who was offended one-on-one. And this student recorded his conversations with these administrators. And there's a pretty clear implication that if he doesn't cooperate with them, they're threatening to bring it back up for the character and fitness part of the bar exam. So, I mean, this story would be kind of hilarious if there were no stakes involved, because it all just reeks of like HOA level pettiness And also these students at probably the most prestigious law school in the country who are fragile porcelain dolls. But here's my question for you guys. You're both faculty at top-tier law schools. The tendency on the left, to the extent they address it at all, is to see a story like this and say, okay, even if you're bothered by this, maybe they went too far in this instance, but this is a discrete event. The tendency on the right is to read these things as representative of a broader decay within higher education and especially elite higher education. Uh, This one's a jump ball for either one of you. I'd like to hear from both of you based on what you see on your campuses 
Which one is closer to the truth? How widespread do you perceive this kind of thing? Maybe not to this extreme, but to be on your campuses. Well, I can well, answer. Rich, Richard, Richard's on the faculty of one third of the top 10 law schools. So go first. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not on the Stanford Law School faculty. I, I think Yale, to some extent, has been sui generis on this. We've never had anything at NYU like this. They had one incident at Chicago some years ago, but that actually did involve some explicit racial disputes. So it was completely different. And I don't remember who the kid was, but it was sufficiently serious uh, that the fellow who had made the epithets was removed from his summer job at one of the major Chicago firms. This case doesn't strike me as that. I thought there was something which said that the dean had basically said, we we just were talking, uh, nothing is going to follow from this. The story, as I understand it, is, what, three weeks old now? I think that's about right, yeah. Well, I mean, and if nothing further has happened, then I think what's happened is that these people recognize that they went too far, and they backed off. I mean, to me, the much more troubling incident about Yale was essentially the way in which they abused Heather Gerken, the dean, when she sent out a note congratulating uh Brett Kavanaugh on his nomination. And they wanted to cancel classes and go down to attack everything at Washington. Because that's much more systematic, and it indicates a kind of a state of mind that I find very, very difficult and and quite reprehensible. Whereas this thing, I I think it's kind of crazy, uh, but it doesn't strike me as being systematic. Um, One could imagine a Republican winning in 2024 and nominating somebody like Mr. Kavanaugh again and seeing a repetition of this event. Um, I I can't even understand it. I don't even think they understand his politics. He is not a hard right winger. He's center right and always has been in terms of the way in which he works and thinks. And, you know, to do this kind of thing to somebody based upon speculation strikes me as being deeply dehumanizing. So I'm disappointed at that. And, you know, other schools did similar things, but I think Yale given the fact that he was one of their alums, sort of took the lead. That's the thing that upsets me most about it. Uh, This thing, I think, is cute, kind of sad. Um, In general, I think that taking offense of something is a terrible test of whether or not it ought to be correctable, as opposed to defamation and so forth. Because if you work yourself up into a blue snit and really become deeply offended at an innocuous statement, that gives you reason by which you could now try to shut it down. And in the flags cases, uh, which Scalia decided, he said, you know, you burn a flag, you can't basically stop people from burning their own flag by getting really mad at it. Um, So you don't want to create a situation in order to create entitlements against somebody else. What you do is you work yourself up into a state. And that's the risk that we have with the Kavanaugh-type things and so forth. People become self-righteous because they become so utterly convinced that they're correct that they will not stop at any moderate objections, which will allow for reasoned discourse and answer. John, John, this kind of of thing more pronounced at Berkeley, John? I think we invented it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I think there's a bigger trend, and I think it's more prevalent in colleges than in the law schools, which is the, I think, the growing power of the diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and officers and employees of which this is representative. It doesn't bother me that some student may say something that might offend other students, and those students right, can conduct a free speech discussion or argument with each other. What bothers me is the intervention of people from the dean's office, you know, people who are you know, acting for the law, Yale Law School administration and essentially trying to force the student to retract a statement and apologize and then implicitly threatening that they report him to the bar so that he can't be admitted to the bar. I mean, this is, I, I find that incredible, but the problem is and this is where I think it is more prevalent perhaps than Richard thinks it is, is that I think this diversity, equity, and initiative, uh, inclusion, staff and employees all throughout the country is becoming a larger and larger share of university bureaucracies. I think a lot of what they do is sort of standardless, but it's a, a um, they have a kind of mandate to interrupt or interfere with the workings of the of a university at all levels. And they are responsible and accountable to no one. And that's, I think, what happened here, I'm, I'm sad to say. And I think it's happening at a lot of universities. I was, I was reading something that said in some universities, the size of the 
diversity office is larger than a lot of departments of the university now. And schools are spending millions and millions of dollars on these things. And they're, you know, they're giving jobs to people who are looking for these kinds of incidents. And then, and they're overreacting and interfering with the force of, you know, threats and even the law when we should just let people work it out between themselves and the way people in society have in the past by arguing with each other. So uh, yes, I am not a fan of the extreme versions of diversity. I regard it as a word co-opted to some extent because diversity of opinion leading to voluntary exchange is the source of life. And there are too many things, not just with respect to race, but other issues that have this kind of domination. The one that, for example, bothers me the most lately is the Twitter declaration that anybody who wants to spread disinformation about COVID will be banned from our side. Disinformation is described as disagreeing with what the CDC or the WHO says, maybe the FDA as well. Whereas I think those kinds of public organizations that wield immense power should be the subject of intense examination and so forth. Uh, they're certainly entitled to defend themselves. People are entitled to disregard what goes on. Uh, but I think that the kind of private censorship that you get on matters of general health and concern um, just simply cut far too deep. And they sort of make everybody seem as though they're a kind of a crank. Whereas, in fact, there are many scientists who appear on the both sides of just about every issue. And what I say about uh, the COVID is also true, I think, about global warming. Uh, some of these issues are indeed complicated. Some are unsettled. In some cases, the received wisdom may be right. In many cases, it may be wrong. But as our good friend Justice Holmes said, the best test of truth is the power of an idea to get itself accepted in the marketplace of ideas. And that's not what we're into today. And I don't care whether it's public or private sanctions at this point. I think they're both really misguided as a matter of national urgencies and that we ought to change our views on that question. And Yale has not been a virtue leader on that particular dimension. So just to take you guys down from the Olympian Heights as, as we close, help us think about the legal side of the Alec Baldwin case. So as probably everyone knows oh by now, Alec Baldwin is, is on a movie set in New Mexico. He is rehearsing with a gun for a scene where he's supposed to point the gun at the camera. Now, he's been told that it's a cold gun, that it doesn't have any live rounds. The gun goes off. Not clear to me from the reporting if he was meaning to pull the trigger or if the discharge itself was an accident. And it kills the cinematographer for the film, also injures the director. Now, the guy who retrieved the gun and brought it to Baldwin in the first place was an assistant director who retrieved it from a cart where it had been placed by the armorer for the movie. Again, not, not clear to me from the reporting why the assistant director had the confidence to tell Baldwin the gun was cold, whether he was told that, whether it was located somewhere on this cart that was supposed to denote that it was cold. Anyway, the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office is investigating this, and they say that they have not ruled out criminal charges yet. So here is a baffled layman's question. This whole thing obviously reads like a horrific accident, but the fact pattern here almost feels like a law school hypothetical. If one were bringing criminal charges or considering, I should say, criminal charges in a case like this, what would the charges be? How would a prosecutor think about a case like this? Oh my God. First of all, uh, the general rule is that this sounds like a case of negligence, very serious negligence. It doesn't sound like a case of willful disregard, at least on the facts that we know about Alec Baldwin. He seems to have been innocent of any intention and any knowledge. So I think that he may be uh, charged perhaps with negligence, both because of his own actions and assuming the gun was safe and because of relying on other people with whom he was part of a team working in concert. I think everybody else in the chain of distribution, I think, is going to be there. I think if there's going to be a criminal charge, it would be brought against somebody who made a deliberate use of the weapon, uh, say, taking it out of storage uh, for some kind of purpose of his own, and then putting it back without removing the ammunition. That could be reckless disregard on that individual. I think it's going to be hard to get this vicarious to the company that owns the production and so forth. Uh, so I think in effect, virtually anybody and everybody can be sued in tort. And the rule on that is you don't try to guess whether Baldwin did or did not have the right knowledge. You sue them all and then sort it out in discovery. And the case will then 
settle. I think there is an insurance coverage uh, with respect to these kinds of losses. I don't think there was a coverage with respect to the delay in the production of the movie. And so I hope that this thing is primarily a civil case. But if it is going to be a criminal case, I think you have to prove more than just the stupendous carelessness. You have to prove that there was somebody in the chain of title who knew that this thing was armed and loaded thought that it was armed and loaded and neither told anybody nor did anything about it that would be to me the test as to whether or not you bring a criminal charge john i know i i fully agree with richard finally at last, oh, last podcast episode took an I, hour four <laughs> and then and the 11 years up. prior to that yeah to, except should there be an exception to the rule of law for cases involving alec baldwin Um, I think that question answers itself. I mean, in (laughs) fact, this case would have gotten one one one-hundredth of publicity if it wasn't Alex Baldwin. In terms of publicity, look, it's an unmitigated tragedy. uh, And I think the family of the poor woman who was shot dead should certainly get some kind of recovery. I would be inconceivable that she cannot. And I think that she basically brings the kitchen sink which is the way you bring tort suits. There's so many different theories, so many uncertainties. It gets resolved in discovery, and then it sort of settles out. Everybody's going to have to have their own lawyer. It's going to be a nightmarish proceeding. I just hope that they give her family an ample settlement and they do it quickly. Um, But the criminal stuff, I think it's appropriate to investigate, but at least as presently advised, counsel here does not see criminal charges uh, for what you would want to call some form of manslaughter. All right, fellas, that is going to have to do it for this installment. My thanks as always to you both, to our producer, Scott Immergut, and to all of our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Good enough. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.